want to be critical, it's not hard. <laughs> it doesn't look like much. It's not polished. It's not amazing. But the reality is, is God just works in a powerful way in spite of our efforts. You know, every week as we gather as a staff to pray for the church, we pray that the Lord would lay, raise up people from the body, anoint them and fill them and direct them. And he does. God raises people up and, and gifts people and anoints them. And you just get to see this from situation to situation as God equips people for the benefit of the body and especially for the children. God raises up people to bless and to care for these kids. And, you know, I, there's just, there are no words to express how grateful we are to the Lord in these situations and to see the fruit that comes forth from every effort that we make. God does amazing things. So for those of you who are here, we do thank you so much and uh, continue to keep the kids in prayer. The Lord bless and just continue to lead them in his way. If you have a Bible handy this morning, we're going to be in a couple of different places. Actually, we'll start out in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. We're going to be talking about John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. We'll also be in Luke chapter 7 a little later on and the Gospel of John chapter 1. But John the Baptist is our focal point this morning. Let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing this morning. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus this morning. Father, we want to thank you for your grace towards us and, Lord, your ability, Father, that works in the church in spite of us every single day. Father, how you grip the hearts of people and, Lord, you draw people to yourself. Father, you communicate to the hearts of men and women. Father, you strengthen us in, Lord, the area where we have need. You raise us up. Father, you provide wisdom for us. In, Lord, the issues that we're struggling with, fathers, we need your help. We need direction. We need understanding. And, Lord, you are so faithful. We pray this morning, Lord, as we look at your scripture and we look at, Father, the example of your servant, John the Baptist, that, Lord, this truth would just come to life before us, Lord. Father, that you would reveal to us and speak to us, Lord, that we might take up your calling, the calling you've placed upon each of us, to honor you and to serve you in these last days. We love you. Father, we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a cell phone, take a moment, switch it off, please. For many years, I mean, honestly, from the time I was a small child, I think, I had this idea that the world was a really crazy place. And so, you know, little did I know how crazy the world could become. I, I think, honestly, a day doesn't go by that I don't have the conversation with some person saying something to the effect of, if you had told me 10 years ago that this and this and this was going to happen, I would never have believed it. And of course, you realize, of course, 10 years ago is 2005. It's not that long ago. But I, sincere, I have that conversation all the time with people. For a long time, I used to wonder if the situation of our modern world was actually worse than other periods of time, or if we just have different kinds of problems that made it seem worse because they are our problems. If you have been considering the same idea, let me put your mind at ease. It's worse. It's much worse now. I guarantee you, you can trust me on that. Not only that, but it's interesting, after a while you look at the world situation, you start to wonder, is there a bottom to this thing? Is there some kind of limit? And I, and I think, I mean, how, how bad can it get? The answer is, we don't even want to know. We don't even want to know. Seriously. The thing that really brings it home to me 
is to see innocent people suffering. And you don't have to look hard. It's everywhere. When you see small children that are being murdered for their faith in Jesus, and that not, not that alone, but the fact that the entire world ignores it, like it's not even happening. The condition of the world, and I think especially of our country, folks, because don't kid yourself, we have a different accountability than the rest of the world. The accountability of the United States and our heritage and where we come from is very similar to the Old Testament Israel because we have a godly heritage, we have a foundation, we have a background that makes us answerable to God in a very different way than uh, many other nations of the world. And we are, we are accountable to him. But it reminds me of the question that God asks of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 5. He says, why would you be stricken again? Why will you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And again, folks, we're just not talking about generic run-of-the-mill evil. The scope and the intensity of this evil just leaves you without words. It's not just soldiers in the field or terrorists or politicians or media people or uh, social activists, but all of the above moving forward in a single-minded purpose to destroy and defame anything that is good and decent and especially anything that is called Christian or that is associated with the person of Jesus Christ. This is the reality of the world that you live in today. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ. He said, if they, if they hate you, you know that they hated me first. And this is where we live. And it is heading to a conclusion. And you can sense this also, can't you? To a point of decision. The people of this world have spent so much time and energy pushing in the wrong direction. It's about to be payday, folks. And today, like never before, I really understand why we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Because it is plainly our only hope. There can be no real justice with men. I mean, accidentally, there is justice. Or when God intervenes in a situation, there can be justice. But it's not our nature. We don't have the tools God is justice. He knows no other way. So we have this problem. Fortunately, God is always way ahead of us. And he has a plan to deal with this current distress, doesn't he? And it's called, you may have heard this plan before, it's called Jesus. He is the answer. He is the answer to every problem. In addition, God has gone to some great lengths to tell us about this plan and to prepare us in John 16.33, Jesus says to his apostles the night before his, his suffering, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, he's speaking about the specifics of his suffering and the coming persecution of the apostles. But the principle holds up. It's John 15.15. 15. He says to them, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. 
For all things I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. This is what the Lord does for us, isn't it? Because it is a very important thing that we're not caught entirely off guard by God's plan. God wants to bring us along with him. This is why he's got us reading this book every day. This is why we spend time with other believers, fellowshipping together, and also seeking the Lord for wisdom, to understand what it is that God is is doing, what, what he's doing next. The Spirit details how important it is for us to be on the same page with God in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, when he's talking about the day of the Lord, day of the Lord, which is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 says, You, brethren, are not in darkness, that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. Always interesting to me to listen to the Lord, but especially when it regards his plan, the outworking of his plan. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord says to the prophet Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. God likes to do this. Have you noticed in your time as a believer in Christ that God likes to shock people a little bit? He really enjoys surprising people. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time God did something in your life the way you thought he was going to do it? See? He likes to surprise people. He likes to say, oh, you didn't see that coming, did you? But at the same time, as we said before, he needs for us to be on the same page with him as we proceed. We all, we all understand that Jesus actually is God's plan for delivering the world of men from the destruction to come. We are reminded that the earthly ministry of Jesus begins with none other than John the Baptist. John's ministry was to point people to Jesus. And John talks about God's plan in Jesus. And that's really where we're going to start today. It seems that John was a man of few words in the scripture. Few words, but very well chosen. And there is a huge response we see in the Gospels to his preaching in the beginning of the ministry of Christ. All the way through, so you have John at the beginning of the Gospels, and then if you read the book of Acts, some 20 to 25 years later, not in Israel, but in western Turkey, in Acts chapter 18 and 19, you have people that are following the teaching of John the Baptist that know nothing about Jesus. That gives you an an inclination as to how amazingly powerful this guy's ministry was. And if you you don't pick up on that, you can miss it. And John certainly had a lot to say to the people who came to the Jordan River to be baptized by him. He didn't mince words. You kind of get the impression John was the poster child for in your face. There, uh, there are some people that are, um, I don't know, congenial, very affable, friendly people. 
you might have a disagreement with them, they might have a problem with you, and you sit down to talk with them, and you finish the conversation and walk away, not ever realizing that there was a problem because they're so nice about it. John was not this kind of person. Not at all. Um, John was one of those people, if you had an issue with John, you were going to know about it, no question marks. He said what he thought, thought what he said. However, concerning Jesus, John just has a handful of things that he says concerning Jesus. And we're going to look at a few of them today. Uh, In Luke chapter 3, he says, Jesus is mightier than I. He says in Luke chapter 3, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. In John chapter 3, he will purge his threshing floor. In uh, the gospel of John chapter 1, John says, behold the Lamb of God. And he says it twice in the same, same period there. And then sometime later, in John chapter 7, as John was in prison, he asked the question of Jesus, are you the one? There was, of course, the situation of of Jesus' baptism, the Father identifying him as the Messiah. And we'll get into that a little bit when we look at uh, John chapter 1. John the Baptist's footprint in scriptures is relatively small compared to the impact that he had in the day of the Apostles. There's something to be said, I think, folks, for being a person of few words. I've always been accused of being vaccinated with a phonograph needle, meaning that I talk too much. And uh, I'd like to say I disagree with that, but it's the truth. (laughs) Most of my life, I've always looked at quiet people who don't say much and thought, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful to be like that? But that's just not my lot in life. I talk a lot. Um, Real benefit to be a person of few words, though, you know. As long as they're the right few words, the right few words, you get clarity, you get attention. You know, when somebody never talks and all of a sudden they say, he's going to say something, be quiet. I mean, seriously, people, listen. It's like that that old commercial about the insurance company, how was it? You know, and somebody talks and everybody turns around and you get impact when you're a person of few words. Truth is, generally speaking, I think we all talk way too much. And I blame television. Seriously, when you're in a room of people and it's quiet for a minute, everybody's, oh, that's, we're just supposed to be somebody talking all the time. We talk too much, we don't do enough. First John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And you know, that could be the epitaph for John the Baptist, because his words and his actions were one. They agreed together. And this is what God wants for people. He didn't waste words. Again, when John spoke to you, you knew you'd been spoken to. There was a weight to his words, a kind of gravity that didn't come from him. And the people who came to hear him knew this. In Luke 3.15, it says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. Now, historically, at this time in the first century, folks, there was an expectation for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, as foretold from the Old Testament. And we get that not only from the Old Testament, but we get that from other supportive issues that we find, for instance, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, if you bring up the issue, not only that there was an anticipation for the coming of the Messiah in the first century, but there is 
powerful evidence that the Jewish nation at the time of John the Baptist believed that the Messiah was going to be God in human flesh, that he was going to be the Son of God. You get into a conversation with an Orthodox Jew about that, and they will totally deny it. They will say, yes, we've always been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We expect him to be coming at any time, even now. But he's going to be just a normal man like the rest of us. Well, you know, Jesus was a normal man like the rest of us, but he was also God in human flesh. And if you do a study of the Dead Sea Scrolls in particular places, and I can show you where if you're interested, you'll see references to the fact that the first century scholar, even before, probably 100 years before John the Baptist, were looking for the coming of the Messiah, and they believed that he was going to be God in human flesh, the Son of God. And even in uh, the apocryphal book of Enoch, which was in huge distribution and circulation at the time of John the Baptist, people believed from the book of Enoch that the Messiah was going to be the Son of God. So, in answer to the question as to whether John was the Messiah, or not, this is a question, by the way, he was probably asked numerous times. We have another response in the Gospel of John, different from this time. He responds that the Messiah is one who is mightier than he. Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. The people were impressed with John. Even though the scripture tells us he did no miraculous works, and you find that in, in the Gospel of John 10.41, they were so impressed with John that they thought he might actually be the Messiah. The really great thing, and seriously, this is really phenomenal and important, is that John was not impressed with himself. That is the amazing thing. John knew who he was, and he also knew what he was there for. He was, as he told the Pharisees in John chapter 1, verse 23, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. He was the fulfillment of the word of God for a specific prophecy. It's a great thing for him to know it. Now, to be fair, we are all fulfilling the word of God in some way. I mean, even the people who are going into eternal judgment are fulfilling biblical prophecy just not in a way that they're going to like at all. John knew who he was, and he had the wisdom to follow the Lord's direction and to let the Lord lead him. Doesn't that sound easy? Follow the Lord's direction, let the Lord lead you. It's, it's not that easy, is it? It's not. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy. In fact, I know this morning some of you here are struggling trying to follow the Lord's direction for your life. And you're, maybe some of you are trying to figure out exactly what that, the Lord's direction actually is. And it's, it, the, the process is sort of, it reminds me of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, because that's what we do. And it's important, folks. This process is important. God could give you an email message on your phone every morning telling you what his will is, where to go, how to do it. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he wants you to seek him with all of your heart. Now, you can go two-thirds of the way and just give up and say, I'm going to do what I think is right. You can do that. People do. 
and they suffer the consequences of that. But if you really want to know what God is leading you, you're going to wind up on your knees. You're going to wind up humbling yourself before the Lord. You're going to wind up seeking him with your whole heart. And you're going to insist upon hearing from him directly to know what it is that he wants you to do. God help you. But it's an important process and something that he has invested himself in and he has a purpose for, him, for us as we, we seek him. There are so many in the church who somehow imagine that it is their responsibility to promote themselves. And this is a problem, and the problem is, is that they are good at it. And this is what the world teaches us. Promote yourself. Do you know if you want to be a manager, dress like a manager, talk like a manager, act like a manager, and sure enough, pretty soon you'll be the manager at McDonald's. Or some other fabulous place, you know, some other corporate enterprise. But this is what the world teaches. And people come into the church, and they receive Christ, and they say, well, you know, I want to move up. I'm a mover and shaker. I want to. And so they begin to promote themselves. And fortunately for us, God is faithful to, how shall I say, to redirect us according to his purpose, you know. And you, you fall down, you learn things. And God is faithful. But people... People are good at promoting themselves. And the other problem is, is that when people in the church promote themselves, other people will follow them. That also is the fulfillment of Scripture, isn't it? 1 Timothy 3.1 says, Know this in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Where are my kids? Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of God. Oh, I'm sorry, that's despisers of good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And, and get this last part. Up until there, it's just a big long list of all the evils of our world. Having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. You see, all of a sudden it puts that whole list in the church, doesn't it? Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Watch out for this. Folks, we need to follow the Lord. Not people. Not smart people. Or people with amazing testimonies. Nor people with huge ministries. Or even people that the Lord uses powerfully. Now I know... In, in Paul's epistle, he says, follow me as I follow the Lord. But his intention is, is that we would follow the Lord. He's just in the middle there. And he knows he's of negligible importance. We want to follow the Lord. We answer to him. We don't answer to people. And this is what John did. Check it out. John's there in the first century. There is this whole huge Religious bureaucracy in Jerusalem. Does he go to try and fit in and work his way up? He's a Levite. Does he try and, and climb the echelon of the corporate ladder through in the temple? And No. He heads out where nobody is in the middle of the wilderness by the Jordan River and preaches to whoever will show up. And all of a sudden, the huge crowds come to him. Why? Because he is following the Lord. He is following the Lord and he is telling people to do the same. He's encouraging others to do it. He says, 
of the Lord that he is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And this is interesting. I've read that a teacher in this period of time and even maybe uh, in the period before in Judaism, a teacher who has disciples was not to charge his disciples, but the disciples did serve their teacher and they would do any kind of a task that a household servant would do, except they would not tie or untie the sandal straps of the teacher. This was beneath them. This was the job of a slave, okay? Notice, John says that he's not worthy to do that job. He's not worthy to be the slave of the one who is coming after him. Who is Jesus, of course. Fascinating, you know. John is, or could be, a master of marketing. Because he... He's starting to point to Jesus, but he doesn't tell them who Jesus is. He says, the one who's coming after me. And they're like, who? Well, I can't tell you right now. But one of these days soon, I might tell you. But I can't tell you right now. Would you like to know? Yes, tell us. No, I'm sorry. I can't tell you right now. The one who's coming after me. I mean, it's the buildup at God's direction. Pretty awesome stuff. John knew who he was, folks. And because he knew who Jesus was. Until you know who God is, there can be no fixed point of reference to navigate your world. Until you know who God is, you cannot begin to figure out who you are. If you don't know who God is, you are whoever you make yourself. The only limitation is your own stupidity. You can be anybody you want. Look out on the street every day. You can be a cartoon character. Every day. You can see it out on the street. And you know what Einstein said about stupidity? They, they asked him about being a genius, and he says, Well, you know, genius has its limitations, but stupidity is boundless. When you know who God is, then you can begin to put together the, the outline of who you are and what you are here for in the light of his truth in the scripture. Having the scripture and truly understanding that it is the word of the living God is everything, folks. John knew who he was. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and a deep darkness, the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. And what happens when his glory is seen upon us? We point people to Jesus. John knew who he was. But that's not all he knew. He knew things about Jesus. He knew that Jesus is the one who baptizes. And in the second half of verse 16, it says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John baptized people in water at the Jordan River for repentance. And like, I think, everything in our lives, we understand in reference to who we are and what we do. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Psalm 23, David is a shepherd. And so he writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. A little later on in David's life, he is the king of Israel. And in Psalm 5, he writes, 
Psalm 5, verse 2, Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. So with reference to the ministry of John, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because John was a Baptist, and he saw things in reference to what he did. John is responsible for, by the Holy Spirit, of course, coining the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It comes from this situation. And the Lord uses John's viewpoint But again, it's all according to the Lord's leading. You know, every one of you has a different personality. You have different ideas, different perspectives. You see things differently. And God wants to use that differentness in your life to employ you as a part of his body, the church, the family of Christ. He wants to anoint you to serve and to point people to him in a different way than anybody else in the whole world can. Folks, there are people that you can speak to that nobody else can talk to. But the question is, are you willing to? Are you willing to ask God to fill you and to stand in that gap and to be engaged in serving on behalf of Christ, to do what John's doing here, to follow the Lord's leading? Now, John should know about this being baptized in the Holy Spirit. He is anointed with the Spirit of God himself, just as the Old Testament prophets had the Spirit of God upon them, because John is the last of all of the Old Testament prophets, isn't he? Even though, again, John does not do what we would consider to be any kind of a miracle, he speaks with the power of God's Holy Spirit. Very important. The people don't do the things that this guy did by their own inclination. Especially you don't go in insult the king and tell him he needs to repent because he's married to his brother's wife. You don't do things like that on your own inclination unless you know that the Holy Spirit of God is upon you. He is in the process of announcing the coming of God to earth. His words, when people heard them, they knew that these are not the words of a normal man. And seriously, it's like when you, when you hear that, when you really hear it, it's like cold water in the desert. It's like, this is what I have been waiting for my whole life. Seriously, folks, if you've ever been out street witnessing or you had an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and you begin to talk to people, you can see in the face of a person if they are hearing the Lord's voice. It is, I don't know what it is. It is impossible to describe. When you're talking to somebody And all of a sudden you make eye contact with them and they're like, really? And you see in their face that God is speaking to them. It is the most exciting thing that will ever happen to you in your whole life. It will fry your brain right on the spot. You want to say, stop a minute, I have to do a backflip, I'll be right back. I mean, seriously, it is truly amazing. It is truly amazing. I wish it happened when you talk to every single person. It doesn't. Most people you talk to are like, you know, talk to the hand. They don't want to hear it. You know, you're bothering me. Don't you, you know, yeah, God, 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 I know, I know, I know. I know. They don't want to hear. But every once in a while, you will talk to a person and they will just be nailed. And it is amazing. It's wild. And this is what people heard when they heard the voice of John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, it says, talks about that spirit that breathes life into what we do. It says, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Well, okay, this begs the question. 
If I have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. In addition to that, you can ask God, fill me with your Holy Great. Why do we go to Bible studies to be taught with people if we don't need to be taught? And the answer is, we need the Holy Spirit of God to speak to us, each of us, individually. And this is what we want. When, when a person is teaching a Bible study, we speak to people, our desire is to speak to people with the words that God supplies by the power that he gives. By that very baptism in the Holy Spirit that Jesus has performed and is faithful to perform upon the person of every believer that seeks him for this anointing. He's done it. He will do it. John 14, 26, he said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the fathers will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. In Luke 11, verse 13, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But you need to ask. This is the thing. I mean, I love to talk to people, especially at the Lord's direction, with the ability that he provides by the Holy Spirit. And again, there's nothing like it. I don't expect you to profit from some idea that I have shared. That's not very reasonable. To be honest, there is nothing that I know that is going to fill the bill for God's work inside of you. Still, I'm praying for God to use this gathering to speak to you himself. And not only that, to affect in your person, spirit, soul, and body, that you will understand from him his truth. Truth that cannot be expressed in human words. When you go to a Bible study, our prayer is that you would receive from the Lord the truth that you can't even put into words. Have you ever had God speak to you and tell you things that you can't express to another person? can't tell you how many times that I have talked to people, people who have come to this church for the first time. Usually they sit down here in front all dressed up because they don't know how we dress. And, and they'll be sitting there and listening to Pastor Xavier. And I'm, I'm very serious. I have heard this so many times. And in the midst of the Bible study, they start to become concerned because it sounds like that guy up there in front has been talking to somebody who knows about their life. Who has this guy? I talked to a man who came to this church and he said about two-thirds of the way through the Bible study, he started to look around to see who is it. Somebody has been telling this guy about me and I'm ticked off. And he was, who is it? Who is the guy? This is the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says that the secrets of people's hearts will be revealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what God does. It's amazing, and it's humbling. But when God speaks to us in that way, folks, we are connected to him. This is what we were made for. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we should be praying for every day. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. I had somebody talk to me after the last service. You know, I'm praying, God, fill me. How do I know that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's, you, know, you trust God. His word says, you ask, it's going to happen. Well, you know, I, I don't talk in tongues. So what? So what? 
You're different than everybody. The way that God's Holy Spirit is going to work inside of you is going to maybe be different than any other person. But you be confident the, the Lord is going to honor his word. If you're seeking to walk with him, you believe Christ died for your sins, you believe he rose from the dead, you ask for him to fill you, get up, step out, walk. He is faithful. He will fill you with his spirit. Now, if you're practicing stuff in your life that you know is contrary to the scripture, you're messed up, you're not walking with the Lord, don't expect God's Holy Spirit to fall upon you and give you power in these issues. God's purpose is that his spirit will empower us to be his witnesses. It will empower us to stand up to temptation. You having trouble with temptation? Pray for God to fill you with his spirit, to have victory over this crazy world. And we need this. Folks, we cannot do without this. John says in the last half of verse 16, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we understand the fire reference to be indicating the experience in Acts chapter 2, verse 3, that it appeared over the apostles, the 120 in the upper room, divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them. And that seems to be the, the reasonable explanation of John's word. There are some other Bible commentators who see this reference to Jesus baptizing in fire as a work of judgment that Christ detailed for us here in verse 17. Because Jesus is the one who brings judgment, isn't he? In, in Luke 3.17, it says his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the, his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, Jesus is going to clean house. That's it. First of all, we need to understand the picture that John is using. A threshing floor is a place that people used to process grain at the time of a harvest, all right? Uh, the grain was first separated from the husk that covered it by animals, mostly oxen, walking on it. And uh, this is why the, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 25, 4 says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Treading out the grain. They walk on the grain, separated from the husk. After the crushing of the grain to remove the husk, the husk, by the way, which is called chaff, you have to separate the two because the chaff is basically worthless except to be burnt. And then, of course, the wheat we grind into flour and we make bread from it. Verse 17 is about the separating of the wheat from the chaff. But it's not, is it? It's, an, it's a parable. It's about people. People that are wheat and people that are chaff. Can you tell the difference? I know sometimes we think we can. You know, we see people and we say, well. But you know, the reality is, you can't. You cannot tell the difference. You do not know who God is going to save and who he's not by outward appearance. And don't imagine that you can. Discourage yourself from thinking that you can look at a person by outward appearance or word or deed and tell whether it is that they're going to be part of the kingdom of God or not. You don't know. Jesus can. Jesus knows. Luke 3.17 says his winnowing fan is in his hand. He knows what he's doing. And not only that, he is doing it. We think about this separating of the wheat from the chaff, the separating uh, believers from unbelievers. 
And in our minds, it's something that happens at Christ's return or around the Great Tribulation. John seems to be saying that he's already at it, or he's, at least he's ready. And you know he is, folks. Somewhere around 2 million people every day cross into eternity from this world every single day. And Jesus is the one that separates the wheat from the chaff. Because if you are attached to Jesus, you are wheat. But if you are a friend of this world, if you are a friend of this world, James 4.4 4 says, you are the enemy of God. You are chaff. It's interesting that Jesus uses the very same imagery when he talks to Peter before Peter betrays him three times. In Luke 22.31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, that when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. And as it turned out, of course, Peter was the wheat, wasn't he? Although he did look pretty chaffy there for a while, as he denied the Lord three times. If you look at it, really, though, I mean, not all that much difference between Peter and Judas, is there? Except Peter returned to the Lord. Peter repented, and Judas was chaff. Judas did not. Jesus, Jesus is sorting it out. And the precious wheat he brings into his barn, and the chaff he burns with unquenchable fire. Not with just any kind of ordinary fire, with unquenchable fire. Doesn't sound good. First Peter 5 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now that doesn't sound like you're the chosen, so you should just kick back and relax and be secure. That is be sober, be vigilant. Because he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he can, and he does. Hang out around a church for a while, and you'll get to see this. You will watch people put themselves in a compromising situation, and you can almost see the teeth marks. People get chewed up and messed up because they have put themselves in a situation where the Lord has not, not put them. I have to tell you, more than just about anything else, the thing that keeps me sober, and I don't mean just not intoxicated, I mean focused, for the Lord. The thing that keeps me set upon the Lord is the fact that I know, one, that hell is real. I know that hell is real. And I don't know what hell is. I read what the scripture says and it's somewhat vague in places, except for that it's a bad thing. Hell is a place that I'm not capable of fully imagining in my current situation. Hell is real. And, second thing, I. Me, I could go to hell. I could go to hell. I have no intention of going there. I, as long as I draw breath, I'm going to do everything that I can to be that person that God has called me to be. Notice, not the person that I think I should be. Important distinction. Pretty easy for me to live up to my standards. But the person that God has called me to be. I don't want to live up to my standards or the standards of people I can please people all day long. I know how to look godly. God bless you, brother. Praying for you. You know, or compassionate. Oh, what's the problem? I can do that. The world teaches you how to do that. 
doesn't make me a Christian. I have to live to God's standard. I want to follow the Lord. Remember, folks, the great judgment of God doesn't start in hell. Those people are already under God's judgment. It doesn't start in the cults or the dark corners of bent and broken people. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Folks, we are answerable. We are responsible for all that God has spoken to us, for all that he has shown us. And we have an accountability for the godly examples he set before us, not only in the scripture, but people that God has placed with us who walk with the truth, people who point us to the gospel, the people who led you to the person of Jesus Christ. God did that. I have an, an accountability to him in that issue. And most of all, we are responsible to take up the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is he that set this truth in us. It is he that has saved us from this present world. And we know that. And John knew that. John knew that the Messiah was coming and that he was going to save the world. And like everything else that he did, he made it plain and straightforward for anyone that would hear to understand that Jesus was the one. Jesus was the one who pays our debt. And so if you look over at the Gospel of John chapter 1, in verse 29 we have the account of uh, John the Apostle and also Philip, the Apostle Philip, who are at the Jordan River with John the Baptist. And in, in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. This is the Apostle John and Philip. And looking at Jesus, he, as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John gives us the details of Jesus' time at the Jordan River. The crux of the issue really is verses 29 and 36. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but most people from the Western world, that's just a little confusing or downright strange to any person outside of Orthodox Judaism because the idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God comes out of the Old Testament, specifically out of the book of Exodus chapter 12, uh, the Passover Lamb. This is what John the Baptist is talking about. In Exodus 12, the angel of death was restrained from destroying the the firstborn in the houses of God's people because they had the blood of the Passover lamb 
on the doors of their house. Jesus is the fulfillment of that amazing event that took place 1,500 years before John was there, so long ago. And it freed them from the bondage of Egypt, set them, the Hebrew people, on this path to the Promised Land and to the temple in Jerusalem and through captivity and finally to Jesus, to the person of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover didn't take away the sin of the world, did it? No. It pointed to another Lamb, just like John pointed, just like your life points every day to the death of Christ on the cross and the historical fact that he has been raised from the dead. This is why we are here. This is our purpose. Just like the prophecy of the Old Testament has one purpose, to point us to Jesus every day, one day at a time. Behold the Lamb of God. You know, it wasn't too long after this situation after this time that John was questioned about Jesus' ministry. And in John 3.30, he says, He must increase, I must decrease. It's a good thing to know who you are. And part of that, of course, is to know who you're not. John wasn't competing with Jesus. I had an interesting conversation the other day with somebody, and they asked me if there was anything about my life in which I felt like felt disappointed or like I'd been cheated or I was dissatisfied about a situation. And at the, I was thinking, I'm sure at some point in time I could think about that and think, well, yeah, I wish I'd done this or I should have done that. Most of the time, you know, I feel cheated in my life is by the dumb things that I've done. That's the reality of it. I, I cannot point to a circumstance or a situation and say, well, this or that or the... You know, if there's any shortcomings in my life, it's because of me. And I, I told them, you know what? For the most part, what I feel is that all that God has done for me, I don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve the good things that God has done for me. I, I have no qualification to, to say that, you know, this, this, is where, this is what I should be. This is what I deserve, these, these things. And you know, I also know that there are some people out there who look at me and they know I'm totally unqualified. And they're like, eh, that guy, what's he, man, I should be up there, but he's bad. And I was thinking about it, it made me a little grumpy. And I was thinking, you know, what's the matter with those people? They ought to get a clue. You know, that's okay, they're going to get what they deserve. And then, you know, I thought about it some more and I thought, but you know, really, they're right. They're right. I don't deserve what God has done for me. I really don't. And there's no reason that it... So I pray, Lord, help them not to be bitter. But, you know, God's faithful. And even, folks, when you go through difficulty and hardship in your life, and I know some of you here, you know, it seems like when it rains, it pours. Some of you have gone through terrible things. But God uses those things. There's a purpose for that hardship. You see, remember, God is very economical. He's not going to put you through this much hardship to get this much growth. He doesn't do that. You're too precious to him. The things that you are dealing with are absolutely necessary. Just like the hardship and the difficulty in the life of John. God pointed to Jesus in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3.15, the law pointed to Jesus in Exodus. Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus and David in the book of Psalms. The temple and the tabernacle both point directly to Jesus. The Gospels, John points to Jesus as we're referencing today, and the Spirit pointed to Jesus throughout his ministry. In the book of Acts in the New Testament, the apostles all point to Jesus today. The church, such as we are, around the world, 
point to the person of Jesus. In life, in death, he has conquered the grave. And he is the sacrifice that paid our debt. He is coming soon. And finally, in Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 19, John had one last thing to say of Jesus, and it was in the form of a question. Because Jesus is the one who is coming. Luke seven nineteen, John calling two of his disciples to set, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits. To many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who's not offended because of me. So apparently, folks, John the Baptist, amazing as he was, was a normal human being just like you and I. Aren't you so glad that God shows us the humanity of great people? No matter what the situation or how impressive they seem, they are just people. John, by this point, had been in the prison of Herod Antipas for some months. And I think it's important for us, you know, who have not been initiated in things concerning prison, to understand that there's a lot more going on to a person being in prison than meets the eye, especially in the first century. Um, very difficult. There is the physical thing of being in prison. There is an emotional, mental issue that weighs upon people. And there is spiritual warfare that's huge in the life of a person under such circumstance. John knew that his life was in jeopardy every day. And he expected God's plan to operate in a particular way, and it didn't. I'm sure he was praying every day for the Lord to give him understanding and direction, and it is a hard thing to be under such circumstances. Is it a hard thing for God to let John out of prison? No, it's not. Not at all. And so the question is really, is it the best thing for God to do? Is it God's plan to let John out of prison? And it's not. In fact, it is important for him to be there. John was not in the prison of Herod at his own discretion. It wasn't his plan that he was following. And that can be difficult. Jesus answers him from the scripture. Basically, the things, the healings, and the issues that he cites all speak back to specific prophecies, in, in, especially in the book of Isaiah and also in the Psalms, different places. All those things taking place spoke to John to know who Jesus was. And then in verse 23, Jesus speaks to him directly. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And my guess is that the Lord had already told John that he was going to give his life and maybe he was having a hard time with that. He sends to Jesus asking, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And in John's mind, the coming one, the one who's coming to Jerusalem. And the answer is, yes, he is coming to Jerusalem, but not the way you think. And it's going to be a while. But you will be there. You'll get to see it in person. However, there is a cross to be born. And not only do you have to give your life for the gospel, but Christ is going to give his life as well. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, Our light affliction is but for a moment working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And the guy who wrote that 
is the Apostle Paul who said, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. Paul knew where he was going. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. 1 Corinthians 4.9 But as we are today, folks, what are we a spectacle of? You know, I cannot read this account of John the Baptist and not think of our brothers and sisters around the world who are in prison today. Our brother Saeed Abdini, American citizen, being held in Iran, whose family is struggling with the circumstance. Our brother Farshid Fatai, who has been going on five years in prison, and the Iranian government tells us he's going to be released on December 10th. And, you know, do I trust the Iranian government? Sure. Oh, yes. You know, just like I trust that they're not building nuclear weapons to destroy Israel off the face of the earth, you know. On the week that that deal is made between the U.S. and uh, Iran, the uh, supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, published a book on the destruction of Israel. I mean, what a coincidence. Um, These guys are in such terrible circumstances. I really want to challenge you to stop and think about what they're experiencing every day. They were in a really terrible prison, the Evan prison in Tehran that's notorious and oppressive, and they moved him to a much worse place. They were moved to... Saeed Abedini has severe... Uh, physical problems, and Farshid had his leg broken by an altercation with some of the guards just before being transferred. And we need to be mindful. You know, Hebrews thirteen three says, "Remember prisoners as if chained with them; those who are mistreated, since you yourself are in the body also." We've been praying recently for a couple of pastors in northern Sudan, in the Sudan, uh, in Khartoum, uh, Michael Yat and Peter Yen Reith. And they're both, they were charged with crimes against the state. They're both sentenced to death or, depending on, they were both found guilty. They hadn't decided their sentence. It was either death or they were going to life in prison. And there was a hearing last week. They came before the judge and the judge released them from prison, gave them back their laptop computers and their cell phones and their families. Their families freaked out. They were, they were singing in the streets of Khartoum, you know, around all those Muslims. They were just praising God and crying. God is so good. God gives us wisdom to pray for these brothers and sisters. I tell you, folks, the day is coming when we will be seeking the Lord's favor for our pastors and those who preach the gospel here as the Lord leads us. And if that is the purpose the Lord chooses to point for us to point people to Christ, amen, so be it. We understand that we're looking for his plan and not ours. John understood that this was not his plan, but for him it surely was the greatest possible service with which he was able to serve the Lord. Greater love has no man than this and lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. John was a very special person with a unique calling and a strength of character that stands as an example to those that follow the Lord. Lord, help us to point people to Christ the way that he did because Christ is mightier than we are. Christ is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Christ is the one who is bringing judgment upon this this world. He is the one that has paid our debt. He is the one who is coming. And who is he coming for, do you think? 
Jesus spoke to them again in John 8, 12. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. God help us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us today. We thank you for the scripture and, Lord, your spirit that breathes life into us and into your word. And, Father, our prayer, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be your witnesses as you intend. Lord, that we would live our lives to the standard that you have called us to. Father, you've placed a calling upon each one of us. Help us to fulfill your purpose and to live, Lord, as you see fit according to your plan. And, Lord, not to settle. We don't want to settle, Lord. We want to please you and honor you with what we do. And, Father, we know we fall short. Bless our efforts. And, Lord, you guide us. As we're praying together this morning, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you have any doubt that if you were to die today, that you would find yourself under the grace of God and in the presence of Christ, I want to challenge you to take opportunity here at the end of this service to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If the Lord has spoken to your heart today and you have a desire, I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you repeat this prayer after me, you'll be committing your life to Jesus Christ, giving yourself to him. God has a purpose for you. He loves you. Your response is all that's needed. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Christ died for me on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with us this morning, we'd like to give you a Bible. My brother Perry over there would love to pray with you and encourage you, answer any questions you might have, and then you're certainly free to go. We don't want your money. You don't have to join Calvary Chapel of Pasadena. should go to a church where they teach the Bible aggressively with some enthusiasm. <laughs> Seriously, though, God loves you dearly. He's got wonderful plans for your life. And we'd love to pray with you before you leave. Folks, the Lord wants to use you this week. Time is short. Pray in the morning. Pray before you get out of bed. God, go before me. Open a door. Give me an opportunity to minister the gospel. Even without words, let my life point people to the truth by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit and guide me. God will use you this week. And I can't wait to hear the report, the testimonies of the miracles that God will do every day. If you need prayer for anything at all, I'll be up here in front. If you receive the Lord, go talk to Perry. Keep Pastor X in prayer. The humidity is deadly in Kansas. Bye, you guys.